Hi there. Welcome to season one of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services and to see all the places this podcast can be found, go to BertScholl.com. B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Eamon Murphy. Eamon is married to Mary Lee Murphy, and she is the executive director of the Cancer Resource Center of the Finger Lakes. They have two sons, and Eamon is the owner and sole practitioner at Finger Lakes Acupuncture Nithica. Eamon has been cancer-free for three years. Eamon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bert. It's great to have you here. Yeah, it's fun to be here chatting with you. Yeah, so what were you diagnosed with, and how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, mm-hmm. and I was 61 years old uh, when I got the diagnosis. 61 years old. And how did you find out that you had, a, you had prostate cancer? Um, I went to my local urologist um, for, I wanted to have him check something else out, um, which turned out to be totally fine, benign. Um, but while I was there, he's an old school guy and you're not getting away without a, a digital prostate exam. <laughs> and he felt something um, and recommended I go get a PSA test, which I did. And, uh, and then, the, you know, the numbers were high. And so I, I went through the whole biopsy schmeal and all that. And, and it was confirmed. I remember it was the 27th of September, 2017. September twenty seventh, twenty seventeen. And what was the uh, what was the biopsy process like for you? Um, the anticipation of it was a lot more worrisome than the actual event itself. But you know, speaking to people since then, I think it's um, I think it's a it's a different experience for different people. Because I had uh, one guy I spoke to uh, prior to it, and he's. He scared the bejesus out of me because he, uh, you know, he was telling me how, how much they do it 12 times, man. And each time you get that zing, man, it's like a bee sting, you know. And I'm, so I was a little apprehensive about it. Yeah. But to be honest with you, Bert, I, I hardly felt anything. I mean, it was, and, and, you know, I mean, the local guy, Dr. Husseini, I'll say his name, was, um, was very proficient, very fast. And... Um, it, it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel like a difficult thing at all. But I understand that, you know, it's a different experience for different people. I just got lucky. Well, that's valuable information for yeah, people to hear yeah, because yeah. one of the guys I spoke to about uh, his prostate exam, a previous guest, he mentioned that it, it really hurt for him. Yeah. And I, I remember after, because they do it 12 times, and, and, and I remember when he took the first one, I'm waiting for it to hurt, and it's like, there was, I hardly felt a thing. And I'm just lying there on my side and your butt's sticking out, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, this isn't so bad, you know. And then, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was over in, in less than five minutes. So Nice. When yeah. I had the recurrence in my liver, yeah. they did a biopsy. And they had to put a needle, you know, in like the cartilage between the rib bones yes. to get in there uh, and uh, yeah. they did a little uh, you know a little numbing medication I recall and yeah. Uh, yeah. it was not a pleasant experience I'll tell no. you that it's, no, uh, no. I mean none of it is really I mean right. none of us would do this stuff unless we had to <laughs> yeah but it's, it's just so it just, it just fascinates me 
the different ways that they will biopsy, you know, the, the body or a particular organ and, and yeah. the way they have to get in. Like, I don't even know how they biopsy yeah. the brain, yeah. for instance, you yeah. know? Yeah. But, yeah, uh, I, can't, I can't help but think, you know, 100 or 200 years from now that they'll look back on how things were done now in our time and they'll think, oh man, that was barbaric. You know? Yes, for <laughs> the sure. Same way, the same way we look back on 100 years ago. It's, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, when I first got diagnosed, folks told me, you know, be mindful about the biopsy because if you have a cancer diagnosis and it's inoperable, yeah. then what you've done is you've, you've punctured a hole in the tumor. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. checked with my uh, surgeon in both cases with both diagnoses, and they're like, yeah, like, it's coming out. <laughs> Whatever right. you got going on in there is coming right. out anyway. Right, one so, way or another, yeah. So good. Yeah, I so, suppose that's true. Yeah, I, I had read the same thing. Um, I mean, there's so much information out there now, and you could drive yeah. yourself nuts trying to make a decision based on all the information. I think... In the end, you just have to go with your gut and it you know, yeah. feels right for you. I think you're right. The yeah. first time I yeah. did a lot of research, I read a lot of information. I was married at the time and my yeah. wife had done a lot of research and she'd pass it along to me and I would read it. My second diagnosis, I was going to Memorial Sloan Kettering and I learned very quickly my doctor was incredible and I didn't look up a thing. Yeah, I was like... You just I, trust I, the guy, yeah. Yeah, I recognized that Part of the research is a way to try to feel empowered around the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for me, what really empowered me and was when I realized that I was completely powerless. Yeah. Because yeah. I realized, oh, there's nothing for me to do. Yeah. <laughs> I know. We have, when, when you get that diagnosis, it's like, you know, any control you thought you had over your body, it's gone. It's <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you can... You can eat well, you can exercise, but it's still like a lottery. You know, you don't know what's coming down the pipe. It's, um, yeah. Right. Yeah, I felt that way too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had this, this 61-year-old body that up until then had been great. You know? mm. Never spent the night in the hospital, never broke a bone. 99% of the time felt really healthy and energetic. And then out of the blue, you get this diagnosis. And... It just stops you in your tracks, you know. I mean, it's so strange. Two things. One, it's so strange that your body could be so healthy. Yeah. And you get this, or at least feel so healthy. Yeah. But the other strange thing is that no matter how often I remind myself that there's no proof that our self-care or lack of self-care causes cancer, you know, outside of yeah. like smoking and things like that, or chewing, you know, yeah. ways that it's just obvious that, okay, this caused it. What's strange is that my mind still goes to, oh, well, you lived a healthy life. I mean, I was 36 when I got diagnosed with, with stage two rectal cancer. Yeah. I was living a relatively healthy life. <laughs> and yeah. I yeah. think so many times, even, you know, you're the 11th podcast that I've done so far. And what I'm noticing is like, you know, it's, you know, the mind still wants to point to something to be caused. You know, when you're 61 and healthy, yeah. my mind thinks, yeah. well, why did he get it? And I, I'm yeah. still learning to put aside the, uh, it's like a, a, a preconceived notion, this cultural creation that, you know, mm-hmm. that there's some kind of responsibility on the individual for the diagnosis. Yeah. No, you know? to me, I, I believe it's totally random. 
I, I just believe it's it's just like life itself. You know, some days it rains, some days it doesn't. You know? <laughs> and it's not like, you know, you and I have taken certain programs together. It's not like that, that conversation about, well, it's only raining on me. You know, no, 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 it's, it's raining. You know? <laughs> yeah, yep, absolutely. So the doc diagnosed you, and yeah. uh, what was the next step? They did the biopsy. They said, okay, you have a... They did the pro- biopsy, and then I went back to the doc and talked about the options. And he, um, you know, I mean, he can't tell you exactly what to do, but he strongly suggested I have my prostate removed. He said uh, his, his um, argument was, you know, you're healthy otherwise, you're relatively young, um, and... For me, the decision was, well, I didn't quite catch it in the very early stage. Uh-huh. There ha- you know, it was, it was kind of intermediate stage, but it was the early part of intermediate stage. And I didn't know, you know, would there be follow-up treatment? Would I need radiation? After, you know, the, the question was, well, if I'm going to have to have radiation, should I just go with radiation? But honestly, it was at that point, I... I I just decided, look, this guy has diagnosed me when I had no clue I had it. He's seen, seen so many hundreds of cases of this in his door down through the years, and I'll, I'll just trust him. So mm. um, uh, I made an appointment with um, uh, Dr. Gene Joseph up in Rochester. It was two weeks before Christmas, um, mm. the surgery. And I, I have to say, I'm not, not you know... Uh, I'm not trying to plug anybody here, but man, they were amazing up in Rochester. It was, I mean, it was so smooth. I was never waiting more than 10 minutes for any appointment I had. Things were like clockwork up there. They, they, they really knew what they were doing. So tell everybody again where you went and who your doctor was. Uh, Dr. Jean Joseph at um, Strong Memorial in Rochester. I've heard good things about Strong. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so you said you had a bit of an intermediate stage do you recall the stage info the specific uh word well, numbers and letters uh, i know my gleason score was seven and there's I, I you know i've forgotten a lot of the uh the information that i was pouring over three years ago but essentially there are two factors that lead to that number and mine ended up being at three plus four which i guess was was better than if it was four plus three for whatever reason. And it, I guess it wasn't a super aggressive form, but, um, you know, you're still concerned and, and, and mm-hmm. you're reading all this different stuff on the internet and you don't know what to believe and what not to believe. Um, I was recommended by um, Leon Ginnenthal, you know, who helps out with the, the, um, the Cancer Resource Center here, to go on to a website, um, it was called Us Too. And there was a lot of good, neutral kind of information there. And, but, you know, once, once you're at that, that stage where it's not very early stage, you have no guarantee that there isn't, um, you know, cancer cells outside of the envelope of the prostate. And, and I had that conversation with Dr. Husseini. And I, I said, you know, you're kind of wanting to know what's the score, you know, how am I going to do here? And when I asked him that question, he said, well... There's a 50-50 chance. That was, that was what he said to me. And sure enough, when they did the surgery and I went back and they, had, um, they gave me the pathology report, 
Um, there was evidence that there were cancer cells outside of the prostate, but they hadn't attached to anything. You know, they hadn't kind of set up shop and accumulated in any one area. There were, mm-hmm. It sounded like there were just individual stray cells here and there. So, you know, you, you don't know where it's going to go. I think Dr. Husseini, after the surgery was done and I went back to him for my first follow-up visit, he, he confided to me that he was 80% sure that I was going to have to do radiation. Mm. Um, but um, so far, it's been two and a half years now, and so far I, my PSA is still undetectable, so I haven't had to have any follow-up treatments, which is great. All right, so they're doing their testing, and it could be possible in the future or w- yeah. with this type? Okay, that... Uh- yeah, radiation yeah. I treatment. Mean, I've, I've, I've read so much information online and you hear so many stories of guys having their prostate removed and then they're great for five years and then all of a sudden their PSA number starts going up again. You know? hmm. So you know that there's an, if, if that happens, there's you know, prostate cancer cells somewhere out there in the body. So, oh, so they're not localized where the prostate was? They could be in different parts of the body? Well, they assume that it, they could be. They could be anywhere. But if, if I were to be, if my, let's say on my next PSA test, which is in September, if I, were to, um, if I were to see the number going up to where it's readable, the first line of defense would be do radiation in the area of the prostate. Um, okay. You know, they'd probably do a CT scan as well, but my guess is if there's just some stray cells somewhere, they won't show up on a, on a CT scan or on a, on a PET scan. So, gotcha. so they, they assume that there may be some residual leftover cells from the, the surgery. That um, it got out of yeah. the prostate that, itself. That, uh, yeah, out of the envelope of the prostate, yeah. as they call it. Yeah, yeah the cells yeah. are so small. Yeah. Do you recall uh, the kind of surrounding tissue they took out or lymph nodes or anything? Or does, wait, does prostate, does it, uh, does it metastasize? It doesn't, Lee told me the prostate mm-hmm. doesn't metastasize through the lymph nodes but through the nerves is that correct is that not correct is that yes is it that can well, i think the most common the most common metastasis is through the nerves and into the into the bone area okay. down in the in the lower pelvis yeah i think that that's more common but there's there's I'm, i can't think of the name there's some there's another tissue that they take out um when you have your prostate removed, they take this tissue out as well. I, I can't, honestly, Barry, I can't think of the name of them right now. But that's the most common place where it goes to first because that's right next to the prostate. And in my case, that tissue was clear. There was no cancer cells in that tissue, mm. so I got really lucky with that. It also can, can move into the bladder very quickly because the prostate cancer is pretty close to the mouth of the bladder. So that's often another area where it goes. All right. And you had mentioned us too. Is that us2.org? The, uh, yeah. Uh, is that yeah. a prostate cancer website? Um, it is, yeah. And, and there's another prostate cancer website, and it's called um, prostatecancerfoundation.org. And it's set up out west. And they have, in my opinion, they have some excellent information. Um, you know, I wanted to do as much as I could after my surgery to regain health and minimize the risk of prostate cancer returning. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of that for me was, was diet, exercise, the whole schmeal. And I would go to various websites and find little tidbits of information. 
I found with the Prostate Cancer Foundation website, it's almost like they had gathered all that information into one place, particularly around diet, and they had made their own booklet, and you can download the booklet off their website for free. Mm. And I, I just found their information to, to gel very nicely with, with my own philosophy on what I should be doing with regards to food right now. And, um, so Is that right, in regards to yeah. food? Yeah, yeah. What did, what did they recommend? Well, it, it, well there, there are a number of recommendations for, for prostate cancer, and some of them may be for can, any type of cancer in general, but, but you know, one of the first ones is to eliminate red meat. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, poultry is fine, and I'm speaking now just for prostate cancer. Poultry is fine, provided it's, you're not eating the skin. Uh, they, they want you to minimize uh, eggs. So uh, one of the reasons why they, there have been many tests done in Europe that indicate that um, some dairy products, milk and cheese especially, um, has a relationship with increased risk of prostate cancer. And there's also been studies that show um, certain levels of choline in the body may increase the risk of prostate cancer. What is and choline? I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's, it's, it's available in egg yolks. So it's fine to eat the white of an egg, but not the egg yolk itself. Hmm. So, um, so I, you know, I allow myself two eggs a week because I love, I love a fried egg, you know, <laughs> on a Sunday morning, <laughs> fried egg and a pancake or something like that. Nice. So, but, um, you know, some people I know, I, I know some other folks locally who don't eat eggs at all and they don't do any dairy. So, um, mm. yeah, yeah. And, you know, you want to eat as many vegetables as possible, uh, specifically cruciferous vegetables. Um, because of the antioxidants, so broccoli, cauliflower, kale, you know, those kinds of things, that, that family of vegetables um, are recommended for any kind of, of cancer. Hmm. So what was the uh, surgery process like for you? Um, in terms of the logistics, it was, it was very well done. Um, never having had surgery before, I wasn't sure what to expect. So they, you know, they, they take me into the prep room and they connect me all up. And then they, uh, I, I had a pre-visit uh, about two weeks before the surgery. And this nurse practitioner walked me through everything that would happen. And she, she prepared me really well. And it happened exactly as she said it would happen, hmm. step by step by step. And um, as, they were wheeling, as they were wheeling me into the operating theater, the anesthesiologist says, hey, we're just going to give you a little something to relax you. And that's the last I remember. I remember, remember going in the door and, and seeing, you know, <clears throat> operating room on the door. And then that was the last I remember. Now, the thing for me, I'm, I'm a little guy, you know, I'm just 134 pounds. I've never been anesthetized like that before. And... They, they gave me too much, so it took me quite a while to come out from under the anesthesia, which was kind of worrisome for my wife, because she's in the waiting room and looking up, they have all the surgeries that are going on on this screen, and you can tell where everybody is, and everybody's been wheeled into the recovery room except me. And uh, mm. she finally, finally got a call from one of the nurses saying, he's, he's doing okay, you know, his vitals are okay, but he's just taking a long time to wake up from anesthesia so um, and, and I honestly Bert that's the thing I remember most about it in a way I, was, I really felt like I was trying to come to the surface I was trying to come out of this deep deep sleep and I couldn't I just I just couldn't um, hmm you then, remember then, that 
Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, yeah. You know the way some mornings when you're when you're lying in bed and you you just you're not quite able to wake up, man. You know, okay, it's eight o'clock. I should be getting up, but <laughs> still, there's still a heaviness, and 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 you could easily fall back asleep for another twenty minutes. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Interesting. And did you speak to them about that at all and inquire as to how much you know why they gave you the amount of anesthesia they did? No, I think. I just think it's partly because my body had never had anything like that before. Mm-hmm. I've never taken, I'd never taken medications, um, and and so I just think it was a real shock to my body. They probably gave me the normal amount they would give to somebody of, of you know my my height and weight, um, but for me it was just it was just way more than I needed. Um, yeah. I mean things were things were okay in the end. It turned out fine. You know, mm-hmm. it just it just took me longer to to wake up. And I think that that affects you for quite a while afterwards. I mean, I think it's kind of subtle, but, you know, I think it affects you for months after the fact. You're still kind of not quite back to 100%. I had the same experience, but I'd like to know, you know, for the listeners and for myself, you know, what gave you clues that you were still recovering from the anesthesia? What was the clue? It just, um, a certain clarity um, of thought and an overall feeling of yeah I'm, I'm, I'm back to normal I'm, I'm back to my old self again like it, it didn't feel like that even though I was functioning well and, and back working and all that I just felt I was operating at maybe 90 percent and 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 then there's there, there's a period where it's like Ah, oh, you know, man, I'm, I feel strong again. I, I feel like I, I want to go work out. I feel, you know, I, I just feel like my old self, you know. And um, it's 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 subtle, you know. It's not like a black and white thing. It's a subtle thing. I know what you mean. I recall uh, each time I've had surgery. I've had two major surgeries for uh, cancer. As my father-in-law used to say, you know, every surgery is a major surgery if it's happening to you. <laughs> Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear these guys saying, oh, it's just minor surgery. No, 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 no. There is no such thing as minor surgery. I don't care what, what it is you haven't done. There's no However, such thing. Yeah, but it's my, an assault on the body. It is indeed. Yeah. And yeah. both of my surgeries were like very invasive. Yeah. You know, it's opened my, uh, my torso right up, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, but I recall, and I also had a... Uh, a quote, minor back surgery to pull a few pieces of chipped disc that had fallen in between, you know, in the nerve canal of the spine. But each time recovering from the anesthesia, you know, it took a while. And uh, I remember, I don't remember when it was, but I remember each time thinking to myself, okay, I, I feel normal again. And I've always wondered, am I normal? Am I back to normal? Yeah. Or am I at a place where I think I'm back to normal? Because <laughs> I the question, yeah, yeah, the new yeah. normal. Because I question yeah. the effectiveness yeah. Yeah. of my memory, you know. Yeah. And and probably you know, I'm, I'm sure it was the same for you. You're you're quite tentative, you know. E- even when you know your scars have, have have recovered and all that, and 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 you feel like, okay, I I should be able to, you know, do this or do that or lift this or lift that. You're very tentative to, you know, you, you feel vulnerable for quite a while. I mean, that was my experience. Yes, uh, yes. I, I, felt, I felt vulnerable in a way that I've never had before. Yeah, there was, there's the whole tentativeness about moving the body. Yeah. 
and feeling safe. My uh, father-in-law's brother had a major abdominal surgery and he went through a, a great deal of uh, depression and yeah. struggle you know, yeah. rebounding from it because it is such, I mean, I don't know why specifically he did, but to acknowledge what you said, yeah, there is such a vulnerability to, yeah. Yeah. you know, whether you want to or not, once you step into that surgery, or may I say roll into that surgery, you know, you are giving yourself over and you don't know how it's going to yeah. go. Yeah, you're totally trusting the guys that are working on you. Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. a very vulnerable yeah. place. And for yeah. me as a guy, as I was cared for throughout the process, it was difficult for me to accept it, uh, accept the care. You know, I would often, uh, or may I say, as a guy with uh, masculinity issues, how's that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it yeah, was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, being cared for was difficult. And, and I, I know sometimes I would respond with like, you know, a little joke and sarcasm, you know, to kind of like masculinize the response a little bit, you know, to, to bring yeah, yeah. a little bit of an I can handle this energy, which in retrospect yeah. is hysterical because like my body had just been cut open. I was a mess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't do a damn thing. <laughs> I couldn't save my own life if I had to. I would have. Oh, so it's really, it really is something when, uh, when you, because you, you're pointing to something really valuable. You're not just recovering physically. There's an emotional return to self that yeah. takes a while. And when you can actually sense your thinking and yourself, you know, not being what it once was, who you once were, it's humbling. It is, yeah, yeah. Like like we talked about earlier, you get to realize how how little control you have. You know, it's it's you know, there's a certain point when it's when it's when it's out of your hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I love that the, the the anesthesiologist said to you, "We're just going to give you something to relax you." They say that every single time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Word well, for it probably word. was. I mean, that probably was something to relax me, but it put me out. You know, yeah. and then and then you get the the. You know, the, 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 the main anesthesia on top of that. I'll tell you what, like, I've had three <laughs> surgeries and for the first two, they said, okay, we're just going to give you something to relax you and you wake yeah. up in the recovery room. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, given what they're doing, it's totally fine with me. <laughs> right. <laughs> My do. third surgery yeah. for, the, for the recurrence in the liver, the anesthesiologist says, okay, I'm just going to give you something to relax you. I'm like, can you hold out on that? And he's like, huh? I said, I don't know, man. I've done this enough times. Like, I just want to roll in. I want to see the room. I want to get acclimated. And he was like, okay, sure. You know? <laughs> so we rolled into the room, and I, uh, they had me shimmy off the gurney onto this you know, metal table with maybe there was yep. a sheet over I don't recall. And then he's like, okay, yeah, come in a little something to relax you now. I'm like, yeah, good. I knew I was going out. <laughs> but I wanted to hang on to that. You know, I just, I don't, there's just yeah. an, a, a desire for a little more control. I want a little more control. I want to go a little yeah. further down the road. Yeah. And, yeah. and I gave myself that, you know, was that, was yeah. that an insecurity? Was that, I don't know, but. I thought it may have been, and I gave it to myself. I'm like, you know, if you want that, buddy, you're going in for liver surgery. Like, if you want that, go ahead, ask for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel that, in some ways, I feel once you get the diagnosis, you've lost control. You know, it's, it's, you're no longer in control of your body the way you used to be because it's no longer the body you're familiar with that, you, you know, that you're, you're used to living in. 
it's something has something has shifted, and it's never the same again. You know? So so I I still feel even though now I'm I'm I feel as healthy now as I ever have, but in the back of my mind there's that knowledge I I could lose control of this any minute, you know. And and I don't mean that in a, in a negative pessimistic kind of way. It's just more in a this is life kind of way. This is how life functions, you know. It's just the randomness, the chaos of life. You could you could lose it in an instant. Yeah. Yes, the lack of control. Yeah. Um, it's there's there's two aspects to that that I see in this conversation. And one is what you're saying, and that is when you get diagnosed with cancer, you realize you you don't have the control you thought you had. Yeah. And uh, the um, the illusion of certainty is dissolved forever. Forever, forever. At least for the rest of this lifetime, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I find there's still layers of certainty that have yet to be dissolved, like with this coronavirus now happening, all of us isolating from one another. Yeah. What's coming up for me is like, you know, this is completely uncertain. Like, we don't know where this is going. We don't know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so I thought that my experience with cancer would uh, be helpful to me as I navigate my way through this. And what I found was that once the honeymoon of this all was over, you know, because we all had to social, socially isolate. So I, you know, yeah, yeah. I did that. And then after enough time passed and the honeymoon period ended, I was like, okay, like this uncertainty that we're facing, <laughs> I don't think cancer gave me any preparation for this. <laughs> No, it's a, it's a different animal altogether. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing about cancer is it's, it, there's a certain element of it that's cut and dried. You, know, you, you, you get your diagnosis. You, you, you deal with that however you deal with it. And then you go to your doctor and you put your treatment plan in place. And so you feel at that point that, oh, okay, we're getting a little bit of control. You know, we can, I got my treatment plan in place. And, and then you go through your treatment and then you hopefully come out the other end um, but with this, we don't know where this is going. I mean, we even have no guarantee that we're going to be able to come up with a, with, you know, with a vaccine for this. And, and it seems to be one of those um, viruses that is extremely contagious. Yeah. You know, we've never experienced this before. Yeah, and when I was diagnosed with cancer, one of the things that had me feel empowered was when I got to the place where I saw there was no one for me to be upset with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't wish something would just change, or I, I couldn't wish that a person would just change or that the environment would just change. There was complete powerlessness in that, you know, I'll say, I guess what I'm pointing to was like with the virus, like, I can still be resentful. I mean, I'm noticing my mind still being resentful, like, to people who walk too close. Yeah. Or folks yeah. who don't wear a mask. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, my mind, the, you know, the chatter of the back of the mind immediately starts, you know, yeah. criticizing yeah. them. Then there's a resentfulness that I carry. And then I have to right. let go of that. But with right. cancer, there's no one to resent. No. It's just you. It's just it's you. Just, and yeah. I found a lot of freedom in that. Yeah. And I'm actually dealing with that right now like i have a tell 
in my body that lets me know when I am really being judgmental to a mm-hmm. point that it's uh, affecting me. Like my sacrum, the muscles tighten up. And until I give up whatever I'm holding on to, it's, they stay tight. And the minute I just give up the resentment and the make wrong and the upset, the muscles will literally relax in that instant. Yeah. Yeah. And yesterday, I didn't meditate. I do meditate every morning. And yesterday, I didn't. By the end of the day, my back was really tight. So this morning when I meditated, it relaxed away. You know, wow. kind of, and that, you know, that meditation cool. just, you know, I've been meditating for years now, every day. And it yeah. just returned me to center. And it brought me back to... This is what's so, man. Yeah. You know, you can't. Yeah. I mean, are you going to walk? I'm the one who chooses to go for walks in the park. I'm the one who chooses to put myself in public and have folks who are more relaxed about this possibly come near me. Yeah. And then I find myself resenting them. And it's like, hey, bud, you're the one who chose to go out and walk in in public and walk down the street and go to the park. These folks get to do what they get to do, man. Yeah. And, and it goes along with that. We have expectations of, like, we have expectations of ourselves, and then we map that onto everybody else and expect them to act as responsibly as we might be acting in a given situation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and if we really look deeper into that, then we'll be like, well, I kind of cut a corner here, but, but they shouldn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, such, it's such a human thing to do, isn't it? The you games know? we play. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah they're pretty yeah, funny. Yeah. So I'm feeling better now. Um, what really irked me the first time when I got diagnosed was when I realized that I had to make a decision. Like your doc recommended to you. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward for me. I, there was no, no distress about choosing the road I was going to go down. Yeah, yours sounds a little different. I, well, for me, it was just that, you know, the first time I was diagnosed, one doctor said that we might be able to save the sphincter at the anus mm-hmm. and thus, you know, make my life possibly a little more, keep me a little bit more intact. The second doctor I went to you know, he gave me a sigmoidoscopy, which is a, you know, it's like a colonoscopy, but it's, it's, it's not nearly as far up into the large intestine. And so yeah. the camera went up and he, you know, then he turned the camera around and faced it back down toward the sphincter muscle and yeah. told me to you know, squeeze and tighten my sphincter muscle. And when, he, when I did that, you could see the tumor get pulled down toward the contracting muscles toward the contracting sphincter. Yeah, it was cool and it was quite horrifying to see the damn tumor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was different colors, you know, like, you know, it was was a bit disturbing, but it was also fascinating. Maybe kind of like when you drive past roadkill and it looks messy and then you look at it and you're like, the hell did I just look at that for? That's disgusting. (laughs) In this case, the roadkill is inside of you. you Inside of me growing in my large intestine, yeah. So when the muscle tightened, it contracted and pulled toward the sphincter and went into the contracting tissue. And the doc said, see that right there? See how it got pulled yeah. in? He's like, it's, it's part of the sphincter. He's like, the whole sphincter has to come out. You have to have a colostomy. So I was left with choosing between getting the permanent colostomy yeah. or having the other doc go in and try to 
cut around and leave some of the sphincter muscle. Yeah. Long story short, I just had, as you know, had the whole thing removed and artists have a permanent colostomy. Mm-hmm. But it was that decision. It was, uh, you know, having to even imagine, just imagining going to three doctors and getting their opinions and then thinking yeah. to myself, what if they differ? Then I have to choose. And the reality is I had some options and people are given options and you get to choose. You're like, wait a second, why the, how the hell am I having their cho- choice? And with this experience, I now will tell uh, coaching clients that, you know, they say how their treatment goes. Like one of our friends, you remember uh, Mary Bogan de Belmonte? Mm-hmm. Rest her soul. Yeah. She, uh, she called me when I got diagnosed and she said, Bert, I want you to know one thing. She goes, you get to say how this goes. Your doctors are in charge with the once you say. She goes, you hire them. They take their experience and all their wisdom and training and they tell you what they recommend. And then you get to say how it goes. And that empowered me. But at the same time, it also worried me, you know? And so when I talk to, when I speak to clients about that and I, you know, and I remind them that you're in charge, you hire them. Yes, you have insurance, but you are giving your insurance permission to pay them. And uh, it can be a bit intimidating. And sometimes there's a process to move through, you know, that, okay, so I get final say. You know, I didn't want final yeah. say. I wanted someone to tell me what to do. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you're kind of dependent on their experience and their expertise to guide you. And for me, there, there was, you know, there was no dilemma um, or no choice to be made. It was pretty obvious what I should do, but it sounds like that wasn't the case for you. Yeah, I had options. And at first it scared me. And then there came a point where I, I'll put it this way. When I first became aware of the fact that I had options and that I could choose the way the treatment was going to go, I felt like I was in a maze. And if I went the wrong way, I could get stuck. And there was only one way out. Mm -hmm. And then there came a point, there came a point when I recognized that I had no idea which choice was the correct one. And I simply had to make one. Yeah. And then my experience went from being in a maze to being in a labyrinth. Anybody listening doesn't know what a labyrinth is. It's like a ma- it looks like a maze, but there's only one way in and one way out, and there is no confusion. It looks like a maze, but it's really just a path of one lane that goes to the center of the circle and then all the way back. And uh, I realized I was in a labyrinth, that I will make the choice I make and I will continue to go down the path I'm going down. Mm-hmm. And you don't know. And that was what freed me. Yeah. When I recognized, I mean, honestly, Eamon, it's when I realized, yes, I might die from this. Yeah. And if I'm going to focus on, how do I say this? In my mind, if I focus on not dying and that becomes my sole intention, then I miss the ability to make a choice. I miss the ability to be alive while I'm living. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, pull, the pull is to, is to go there, like just that survival instinct. You know, 
we want to stay alive. You know? it's, it's, and that's why we're choosing this treatment. Yeah. Is to yeah. stay alive. You know, I can hear yeah. someone thinking like, I can imagine someone thinking, what are you talking about, Bert? Like, you, you're doing this to not die. And I get yeah. that, but we can get stuck inside of the thinking yeah. and the worry about the possibility of dying to the point that we lose the ability to experience life fully. Yeah. And it's a, uh, you know. It's, and, but there, there's so many different layers too. And, and for you, being diagnosed in your 30s, that's a lot different, I, I feel, for somebody like me being diagnosed in my early 60s. Mm. You know, I've, yeah, 60 is relatively young these days, but I've lived a certain amount of, of time. I have no idea how I would have reacted to a diagnosis like that in my 30s. Mm. I mean, it would have been a completely different experience, I feel. Because I'm thinking, for me anyway, the first thing, the first thing that, that like you're, you're, you're kind of in shock, particularly when you've never been sick before. You're kind of in shock that not only are you sick, but you've got cancer. This can kill you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm 61. I've, I've, had a, I've had a pretty good life. You know, if the worst, even with prostate cancer, you know, there's an element there that's like, well, if I'm going to get diagnosed with a cancer, Prostate cancer is not a bad one. You can, hmm. you can treat up to a point. You'll probably live at least another five to ten years. That would get me close to 70. This isn't too bad, you know. And, and, and then the biggest concern for me was, look, if I die, I'm gone. It's, it's, I'm, 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 I'm out of any pain and suffering and emotional upheaval. But it's the people that, that are in my, that like my loved ones that are going to bear the brunt of it. You know, that, that's what was very present for me. You know, that, that it's going to be hard for those left behind. Like, like my, my, you know, my wife won't have her, her partner in life at a relatively young age. My sons won't have their dad. You know, and, and so I was, I was already grieving for their loss. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, here I am still alive. And I remember after the diagnosis, I remember lying in bed at night because you're it's it's like it's it's right there it's in front of your face you know in that immediate aftermath of the diagnosis it's like you can't escape it it's just there Mm -hmm. all the time and you'd fall it's like i'd fall asleep thinking about it and i'd wake up in the middle of the night and i'd be wide awake man because as soon as you wake up it's there right in front of your face again you know and i'm lying there and i'm thinking you know what I should, I should go ahead and write my obituary just so that Mary Lee doesn't have to deal with that, you know. And I just, you know, so I'm lying there at three in the morning, you know, you know and uh, figuring out, okay, what will I put in? You know, working on my obituary in my head because I'm trying to make it easier for the ones I leave behind. And, and at some point you go, oh my God. you know, it's like, yeah, you know, five or ten years in a human life is pretty significant but in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, it's like the blink of an eye, you know? Who cares? <laughs> and, and so there's, I feel that there's all different layers of, of thought and understanding and, and contribution in some ways that this, this diagnosis is, you know? And, and you could... I feel like there, there are things I haven't even tapped into as a result of the experience of being diagnosed with cancer and being treated and coming out the mm. other side, you know, not with the certainty that it's ever going to stay away, but it just puts you in a different headspace. Um, and, and, and for me, and I know we're, we're probably going on a different 
different track here. For me, there's, there's a very strong spiritual development aspect to it, you know. Um, not that I'm, that I'm religious in the conventional sense of the word, but it's a little bit of a wake-up call, you know, like, well, well what, what are you doing in this life? You know, what, what, what's your purpose and, 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 you know, what's really important to you? And, and given the fact that I've really been hit with, with, with you know, the idea that, yeah, I am going to die. I'm going to die. It's like, well, yeah, what, what potentially comes next? What do I think comes next? What's my philosophy? You know, it, 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 it just set me thinking when all this had calmed down, it set me thinking about life in a different way, in a way that I never would have had I not got a diagnosis like that. I can completely relate to you. Uh, I was 36 when I was diagnosed, and uh, it was a different experience. You know, my yeah. boys were nine years old and five yeah. months, and uh, it was just like, you know, my stepson was nine, yeah. And, and, and having nine, a five-month-old baby, I was like, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to be alive for both of them. Uh, perhaps selfishly just to be remembered, but I think more accurately, you know, I wanted to contribute to their development. And so, you know, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and to what they bring to the world when they get older. Right. Which goes into right what you were saying, which is, you know, at 36... I was not being the person who I would have loved to have been if I could have lived without any worry about what others would think. And when I got diagnosed, it wasn't very far down the road, maybe only a month before it started to unfold, and I realized, wait a second, I might die. And if I live the rest of my life pretending and then die, like that would just... It was too devastating to imagine. And I started to mm -hmm. step into who I truly am and stop mm -hmm. all the pretending in so many areas, so many pretenses that I just lived by as if they were truths. And there was a whole new spiritual shift. Again, not a religious one, but a spiritual one where I said, wait a second, I have so much passion and fire burning in me that I tamped down and I wait to express. I'm holding on and putting it off until I get older and I know more or some sign to tell me to be the real me. And I started laughing. I'm like, you want to know what? The real me is wonderful and is a mess. And I'm going to be that. And that was, in, <laughs> that was in 2007. I was a month shy of being, maybe just a few weeks short of being 37 years old. And I've been on that trajectory ever since. And when I was diagnosed the second time, that really caused, you know, that, that was like the same thing, but on steroids. How old were you then? The second time I was 41. Okay. And the first time I got diagnosed, I didn't really think I was going to die, Eamon. I knew yeah. I, there were moments where I was like, yeah. wow, I might die. But I really believe that I had a good chance, of, a very good chance of making it through. When I was diagnosed with a stage four metastasis the second time, yeah. I was like, oh man, like, this is serious. I think I'm going to die. <laughs> this is really serious. And uh, that had me just start shedding layers like you wouldn't believe. And just, yeah. you know, like if I'm going to have this experience, you know, I'm going to, you know, be really true to myself. And I think what another way to say it is that, you know, I was on the phone with a friend of mine, you know, she lives in Brooklyn. And uh, I'd gotten, I'd fallen pretty far down the rabbit hole 
of fear and confusion. You know, the whole new level of it with the second diagnosis. And I was speaking to her on the phone about my path. And she said, you know, Bert, this isn't you being taken off of your path and having to redirect the way you live. This is your path. And you just get to choose who you're going to be in the next moment. The cancer diagnosis is not a break from the path. It's part of your path. And I, she said that to me and I just, my whole body relaxed and I smiled and I was like, yeah, thank you for that. You know, thank mm -hmm. you for returning me to center, you know? And, uh, I always tell people who are listening, like, I am by no means telling you that your cancer diagnosis is or was, you know, anything other than exactly what it was for you. This is just how I experienced this. This is the story that I made up. And Eamon and I, you know, you and I right now are, 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 are noticing a shared story that we made up about our diagnosis and what we chose to take from it. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you didn't choose this, right on, do exactly what you're doing because I am no expert on life, that's for sure. <laughs> I just, I think, you know, each one of us, we, we, we make up, we believe, we go down the path in our minds that, that are, are truest to ourselves. Yeah, it's a unique experience for each individual. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and, and, you know, on that same topic, the, another thing that, that I remember is um, between the time I was, I was diagnosed and I had my surgery, there was a period of time there where I just felt kind of emotionally cracked open. You know, it's, mm. it's, 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 I just felt in, in touch with the, the emotionality of everything around me. You know, I'd, 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 I'd be sitting on the sofa you know, next to Mary Lee, and we'd, we'd be having a conversation about something. And, and next minute, like, I'd, I'd be welling up, there'd be, you know, tears coming. And it just felt as though everything was sharpened, you know, particularly that emotional aspect of, of something, um, like something had been cracked open. Um, and, and, and as you kind of get back to normal and the, and the weeks and the months and the years go by, you know, that shell kind of hardens up again. And, and um, so it was just an interesting observation that, 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 that I was thinking about just a couple of weeks ago, how, how I suppose it's a little bit like, um, you know, when you do a particular weekend <clears throat> course or, or a workshop or something, and, and, and over that weekend, you know, you, you have certain revelations and insights and, and you're very much in that and acting on that. And then as you get further and further away from that, as life goes on, you go back to being your normal self. You know, it's, it's, but that initial cracking open has happened and, 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 and that, you, know, you can't walk that back. That's actually happened. It's almost like you have access to that in a way if you choose to go there. You know? Yeah, well put, well put. Yeah. I have always been someone who is, uh, you know, pretty uh, emotionally expressed and after I was diagnosed the frequency that I would shed tears and the things that I would shed tears in response to very much expanded mm -hmm. and uh, I began to realize that we have this cultural response to crying which we could do an entire podcast on if not an entire series but you know you cry and someone says what's wrong 
And after my first diagnosis and this, you know, return to this, this journey of returning to who I once was before I believed the world told me I shouldn't be. Did I say that properly? Right, right. The return to who I was before I believed what the world said, which was you shouldn't be who you are. You know, and so once that journey began, I really began to appreciate my tears and this cultural conversation of, you know, what's wrong when you're crying? People say, what's wrong? And I say, oh, nothing. I'm, I'm just feeling really sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, it's just like laughing. Nobody says what's wrong when you laugh, you know. Amen. It, it, exactly. Yeah. Crying yeah. and laughing are two yeah. beautiful expressions. Yeah. Now, I may not like the source of some crying. I mean, there's some things we see, it's just so yeah. beautiful and so sweet that we, we yeah. move to tears. Yeah. And then there's times we're crying because we're genuinely sad about something, perhaps a loss. But even that, yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful expression. Yeah. And I, I know for yeah. me, like, it's not to be missed. Like, yeah, maybe I don't like what's having me cry, but it's true genuine expression it's yeah. true genuine living you know and and it's, it's also an acknowledgement of, of being moved about something i mean last week we were out out on the roadside here on, on on 96 when those two buses of medical professionals were going from our area down to help out new york city and an escort of cars and and, and fire trucks and ambulances and, and they were going quite slowly, maybe about 10 miles an hour. And there were people on the side of the road with signs cheering them on. And, 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 you know, I was just so inspired by these people doing what they're doing. And, and, yeah. and, and the tears just started rolling down my cheeks. You know, it was, it's, it's also an acknowledgement for the other person that what they're doing is, is, is moving and, and, and so having an impact on the world, you know, it's, hmm. it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great expression, yeah. It is, it is, it's perfect example, and I actually saw that on social media, and I was like, how come I didn't know? Dude, I would have been out there, <laughs> yeah. oh, I would, and you, know, you all did a wonderful job, it was beautiful to see so many people, you know, because I didn't know what I was looking at, I just see this video, right. and I see police cars and, and I hear the sirens and I see the lights. Was it the sirens? Perhaps it was just the lights and the cars coming. Yeah, and, uh, they had sirens initially when they, when they came out from the hospital. We could okay. hear them down here. So acknowledgement, of, you know, you turn yeah. the sirens on for a minute yeah. and yeah. I see them coming and then I see these buses and I'm, I can feel it welling up in me right now. I just, and, I, yeah. and I knew exactly what I was looking at. That yeah. These people, these medical folks who are choosing to go down to the hot zone to be on the front lines and, and, and to support and try to save lives. I mean, it's beautiful and it is moving. And when you're brought to those tears, it's so wonderful. You know, Jimmy V, I don't know if you know who he is. He was on the SP. I, I, I do know who he is. I've seen that speech many times. Yeah, Jimmy V on yeah. the SP Awards. Yeah. And for those of you who don't yeah. know, what's it, Valvano? Yeah. He was ESPN uh, does sports awards called the SP Awards. And, you know, he said, you know, just, Laugh every day, cry every day. If it's tears yeah. of sadness or tears of joy, it's like cry yeah. every day. Yeah, that's a full day. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what's, in, what's really inspirational about that was he was just that end-stage cancer when he made that, that, that speech. I mean, it was, 
it, it took all he had to just get up on the stage and even be there. Never yes. mind give such an inspirational, you know, speech that night. That yeah, he was making jokes about. He, he was yeah. making jokes about how there was tumors out through his body. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, and exactly. He went up there and he stood up there, and the fact that he was even there to begin with. Yeah. And yeah. then to say something so powerful. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Which, which, what, 20 years later, they still air every oh, year. Yeah. I mean, oh. that's how powerful it is. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. So you open your eyes, you come out of surgery. Mary, oh, okay. Mary Lee. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I opened my eyes and, and I remember, you know, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I know I was actually being funny. You know, it's, it's, but I, I, I'm also aware enough to know that, that my, my voice, you know, I had a slurriness to it. You know, it's like I'm, I'm just coming out from under. But I was actually, you know, making fun of things and cracking jokes. And, and, um, and you know, it, 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 it felt strange, but it also felt okay. I mean, they, they had me drugged up and I wasn't feeling any discomfort or pain lying there in the bed, and, and I think it was the Knicks and the Lakers were on the TV. Yeah, I said, oh, this isn't bad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was good for maybe three or four hours. And, um, you know, then um, there was a couple of people at my bedside, um, my son Derek and, and Mary Lee, of course, and a good friend of ours, uh, Matt. And... Um, and then they, they all left, and I was kind of tucked in for the night. And then it got a little uncomfortable um, because I had the catheter in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what happens, um, of those of you who have had catheters probably know, is you, you have this foreign object in the bladder, and the bladder is not always too happy about that, and it can sometimes tighten up, like it spasms. You know, it's, it's wanting to, to get it out, uh-huh. get rid of it, and it spasms. And... Um, you know, I had read about this, was warned about this on one of the websites, so I didn't get too concerned about it. But it's not comfortable. It's, it's the feeling that you, um, your bladder is full and you want to pee, but you can't. You know, you, you just have to kind of suck it up and try and, and relax. And, and, but the bladder is one of those, those muscles that it's, it's kind of an involuntary muscle. You can't, like, you can't, you know, the way you can flex your bicep, you can't do that with your bladder. It's involuntary. Mm. So you don't have that control over it to just kind of relax it, you know. So it was, the night was a, was a little, I won't say it was hard, but it, it, was, it was a little uncomfortable, mainly because of that. Otherwise, I was, I was fine. You know, I, I got to sleep on and off. They kept coming in to, to check on me um, every, every hour or so. Um, but... No, it was it was fine. I woke up the next morning and had a little bit of breakfast. And oh, during the night too, they they wanted me to walk around as soon as I could after the surgery. So four hours after they had moved me to the recovery room, I I took a walk around the the unit um, with one of the nurses, and they, they they pretty much let me know that the more I could do that, the better. And you know, me of course wanting to be an overachiever and get an A plus in this. I was I was I was, I was getting up and, and and walking around, you know, as much as I could. And I remember there's there was this other guy across the way from me and um, he he was just having a you 
know, he wasn't in any danger and he was just having a catheter inserted and, and, and that was done and they were keeping him in overnight to monitor him, but he wasn't drugged up or anything, he was normal. And I'm, I'm walking around and doing my rounds and he, at one point he shouts out to me, he says, hey, are you training for the Olympics? <laughs> it, was just, it was just a funny incident, you know. And, and, uh, That's beautiful, man. Yeah. He's like, dude, you're yeah. killing me. What are you doing? <laughs> So yeah, that's that's what I remember about it. And then, of course, you know, the morning time comes, and you're 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 feeling, you know, the the, the effects of the drugs are easing up, and and you're 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 actually at that point, you're like, I, I want to get out of here. Yeah, I m- remember when I had my uh, catheter, I had a similar overachiever approach, and that you know, a pretty big. Uh, they opened me up pretty good, and then the next yeah, day they're like, yeah. okay, we need you to walk, and I was like, what? <laughs> like I want you to walk and I was like maybe they tell me tomorrow we're going to have you start walking I'm like I just had yeah. surgery yesterday you opened up my entire abdomen and then you turned me over and cut out into my backside and removed my ain't like you yeah, want me to get yeah. up and walk tomorrow they're like yeah well, yeah. we'll see if you can so yeah. then what did I do I'm like alright well if this is the, uh, the goal, I'm doing it. And man, like, talk about baby steps and holding on to that IV pole. I got to oh, yeah. probably had yeah. a nurse on each side of me, man. It was like, right. Right. it's amazing. You know, like in the old days, you know, they'd have you lay around forever. And now they know, yeah. like, you know, if you, you want to you get, recover yeah. well. But, 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 that, but that, that also highlights that, like we were talking about earlier, that aspect of being so vulnerable and so dependent on other people physically. I mean, even though, relatively speaking, my surgery is much simpler than yours. Uh, I mean, I came home that night, and and thank God my my kids were 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 tuned in, you know, and, and my kids took turns because I couldn't get comfortable lying normally in a bed. So I was I was sitting on this easy chair, um, um, with my with my 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 feet on on on, on a little rigged up box I had made, um, and you know I needed help. Uh, I, again, I, I needed to get up at certain times during the night, and I actually needed help. I needed my kids to help me get up out of the chair, and you know, God bless them for for sleeping on the sofa next to me. But they did Aww. that for the first three or four nights, and that was that was a huge help, you know. But but little things like that, that you know, just the very simple things you can't do on your own. You need another human being, you know, to help you do that. And, um, yeah, that was, it was, it was, Oh, that's wonderful of them. And yeah, and yeah that dependence and that vulnerability and, you know, sure. I had a huge surgery, but this is the first surgery you've ever had in your life. Like it sounds like the first yeah. injury really. And it's a, yeah. it's a huge hurdle. And yeah, the, and it, it is. And, and, you know, in the whole, the whole experience of this birth, it's the only time I ever felt sick, if you want to call it that, you know, cause I felt healthy right up to the time I went for the surgery. Once I recovered, I felt healthy. And so the only time I actually felt there's a problem here was say the first two or three weeks after the surgery. Because, you know, you're just so vulnerable and weak and dependent on others to do things for you. Yeah, Um, yeah. yeah. After my catheter was removed, so I was in the hospital, I think for my first surgery for maybe like a week, you know, and I had, asked my doctor, you know, when can I get out of here? And he said, honestly, yeah. I want you to get out as soon as you can because, like, there's, like, what's that, that 
what's that called, like MRSA or something, or staph, and just nasty yeah. things that can get in you that yeah. you don't want to have. So, yeah. so the next day, knowing he was going to assess me, I was fully dressed, sitting on my bed, and he walked in. I was like, hey, doc. I said, so, <laughs> where are we? Am I out of here? <laughs> he starts laughing. He's like, well, he goes, that is a sign. If you're able to get yourself dressed, you know. Yeah. It was yeah. certainly slow movement, and the bending was brutal, you know, in, in like pulling my pants up and things. But I did yeah. it. I was like, You're I bound on the to get out of there, want yeah. to go home. Yeah. Um, but I had a catheter in for all the days that I was there, and I'm yeah. curious what your experience was because this didn't happen for my other surgeries, but for this first surgery, after the catheter was out and I went home, it hurt to pee. Did you have any of that experience? No, um, the catheter started to bother me. Um, I had the catheter was going to be in for 10 days. And the first five or six days, it, it was okay. Man, I actually felt, wow, this is great. It was, so I had my, my surgery done on the, the 12th of December. Now, I'm a big, I'm a big um, soccer fan. And over the Christmas, they, you know, leading up to Christmas, they show they play a lot of soccer in England. So I'm, I'm sitting on the sofa and, um, you know, everybody's waiting on me hand and foot and, and I'm watching soccer on the TV and I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is great. I don't even, I don't even have to get up to pee. I've got a catheter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, so it was great for about five or six days. And then it started to get irritable and uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> and it felt like it was irritable and uncomfortable in both ends, you know, where it inserted into my penis and where it inserted into the bladder. And, and so I just kind of got through those next, you know, four or five days until it was time to go back up to Rochester and have my follow-up treatment, at which point they took it out. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but... It just wasn't comfortable after about five or six days. You, you just really want to say, hey, get this thing out of here. Mm. Now, I didn't have the same experience you did once they took it out. I didn't have any experience of it being painful to urinate. It, um, it felt a little different. I mean, it didn't feel normal for a few days, but it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't painful. And the other thing, and I don't know if this um, applies to you as well, but um, probably not to the same extent, but when you have your prostate removed, um, it, it has an impact on, on continence. And so, you know, there are, there, are two, there are two valves, really, if you want to call them that, 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 you know, control the flow of urine. And when you have your prostate removed, the main valve is taken out as well. And that's involuntary. So you don't have to think about that to, to stay continent, you know, so you're not leaking all over the place. You don't mm -hmm. have to think about that. Your body just does it. The second valve is voluntary muscles, so it's, it's essentially the pelvic floor muscles controlling the flow of urine, and so your body has to be trained to, to, to do that with those pelvic floor muscles. And that takes about, you know, it, it can vary from individual to individual. It takes anywhere from four to eight weeks for, for your body to kind of realize, oh yeah, I have to control my urine by, by you know, tightening these muscles so you go through a period for me it was about three or four weeks where um i was a little incontinent um and and i'm not talking about anything major it's not like you're gonna pee all over yourself or anything but you might have mm -hmm. these you'd be sitting on the sofa watching a tv program and you go to shift positions 
And you might have, oh, I just had a little leak, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's more like that. But that, that gets less and less frequent as the weeks go by until you're pretty much back to normal. So the day that they took the catheter out, yeah. did you need to wear uh, an adult diaper? That's what they recommend. They recommend wearing an or adult a diaper. Either one, a diaper. So I, I wore adult underwear for um, probably, I'd say I wore it for about two weeks. And then I, I graduated to just a pad for about another two weeks. And then I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to get rid of everything and see what happens. And, uh, and I think that also, it, like it's easy, it's easy to have a little leak when you know you've got a diaper on or you've got a pad on, you're not worried about it. Mm. Um, but um, I think it just puts a little more, you have a little more at stake in a way because you're given these exercises. I, I went to a physical therapist who, who specializes in pelvic floor activity and, and, and muscles. And she had given me some exercises, um, you know, to do to strengthen those pelvic floor muscles. And it just encouraged me to be uh, more disciplined about doing those and make sure I did them every day um, so that I could get through that period sooner rather than later. Uh-huh. And I, I felt if I continued to wear the pads, I might have given myself more permission to be a little lax with that. And so, you know, I wanted to get back to normal as soon as I could. So you were chasing the carrot. You're setting yourself up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, nobody wants to be going around leaking urine. You know? <laughs> it's, it's not kind of accepted in our culture. You know? <laughs> not so, so I, much. I, yeah. I wanted to get past that stage and, and move on to the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. And may I ask you about the uh, adult underwear experience? That was, that wasn't a problem. I mean, it's not anything that's noticeable. Or, or and, and actually, I think I wore pads most of the time. I only, oh yeah, I wore the pads daily. I wore the adult underwear at night when I went to bed under my PJ box. I ask because I really struggled with wearing a diaper. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I was doing, I was wearing one because I was having chemo and radiation every day and the radiation or maybe just the two of them combined, uh, just, you know, turn my bowels to water, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, having this diaper, I mean, there was still some warning. I could still get to the bathroom, but if I left the house, you know, I'd have to wear one of these things. So actually, yeah. that said, I did have yeah. one rather horrible experience where I did not make it to the bathroom and was not wearing my adult diaper. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I really struggled with wearing it. It was a yeah. huge barrier for me. I didn't want to go even to get my radiation with this diaper on. It was a, right. a hurdle that I was just not ready to, to jump, and yeah. it took a lot. Well, well, I mean, you know, wearing pads like that or diapers or adult diapers, I mean, it's associated with, with end stage where you have, you know, no control of your body functions or less control of your body functions. Yeah. And, and, and so there's that kind of stigma attached to it. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, it can be difficult. So what yeah. was the uh, surgery like for you? Was it, uh, did they do it uh, orthoscopically? Yeah, they did it. They did robotic surgery. And, oh, you know, I, I just remembered the term, those, those, the other tissue I was trying to remember the name of that it's close to the prostate. It's the seminal vesicles. 
that is most commonly where it spreads to after the prostate. Okay. And, and um, yeah, so mine was clear. Um, uh, yeah, so they, let's see, they, they did um, four little punctures down in the lower abdominal area. Um, and they used those punctures to put the robotic arm into and maneuver around. You know, I, I, I thought this would be a relatively fast surgery, but it's three and a half to four hours of surgery. Hmm. So um, it's, it's, yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's very explicit because they're, the advantage of the robotic surgery is that they have the ability to save more nerve tissue, which allows you better function sexually when you, know, you come out the other end. Um, and mm-hmm. they, they can do that more precisely with the, with the robotic surgery. And then they had, they put a probe in my side, so there was a little opening for that. And then the other scar was they, they do a little, um, they open you up just below, just below the belly button, and that's where they actually take the prostate out. They take it out through that opening. So that was the biggest scar I had, was just below my belly button. Otherwise, I had four little small scars and then one little scar on the side where the probe was and then a second one on the other side where they put a drain in um, to capture you know any fluids uh, yeah surgery yeah and what was the purpose of the probe the probe i think was to to give them i think it was like a camera to some extent that showed them you know, where they were. It just gave them a better picture of what was going on. That's so wonderful. I'm having surgery envy right now. When I had my part of one of my liver lobes resected, I was cut from my sternum, I think as far down as they could cut. Yeah. And then, you know, they They pry you open. Yeah. And then my doc went in and had another device that that spread apart the rib cage. Yeah. 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 And when I first woke up, huh? Lovely. Yeah, lovely, exactly. <laughs> and when I first woke up, I was whispering, and the nurse asked me why I was whispering, and I said, because it hurts to speak. Yeah. And so, Doc came in, they prescribed me a different medication, he's like, yeah, so it hurts to speak, he goes, he goes that's my fault. He said, I pried your ribs cage open a little bit, he goes, but we're going to tweak your meds a little bit, and they did, and yeah. the pain went away, then I could speak normally. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely some surgery envy happening right now, even all these yeah. years later. Yeah, that, that is serious surgery, yeah. And I yeah. really am so happy to hear that they can do the surgery, you know, orthoscopically and be so yeah. far less invasive. So so precise, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. But it's still a surgery. <laughs> and if it's your biggest surgery, man, yeah, it's your yeah. biggest surgery. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's my only experience of surgery. And, 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 I, and if I had the choice, I wouldn't want to have, you know, anything more invasive done. That's, that, that was fine what I had done. Yeah, and you don't even want to repeat yeah. that. No, no, not at all. No, no. And, that, you know, that, that's what... You know, you try to be as positive as you can um, um, and, and say, okay, like this, you know, there's a chance this will come back, but there's a good chance it won't, you know, and, 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 and I try to live from there because what I'm, I'm more concerned about for me, Bert, is not the fact that it would have come back, but the fact that, okay, now I have to go through more treatment procedures. And each time you go through that, your quality of life lessons to a certain degree yeah 100%. And, and and that's you know that's to me is what the, the 
the, the bummer would be if I, had to, if I had to go through more treatment options. The fact that it comes back, it either does or it doesn't. I'm going to die anyway at some point. You know, I'm really not that concerned about, about dying or that aspect of it. It's just I want the rest of my life on this planet to be as healthy as possible and as functional as possible and, and as interactive with the world and the people around me as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely have, I believe that I have aged further along than my actual physical age because of these two major surgeries and yeah. the radiation and the 14 months total chemo that I've had for the two treatments. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I just turned 50 a uh, few days ago and yeah. uh, I tell people I'm a, I'm a heck of a lot closer to 60 physically, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe not, but I'll tell you what, I, yeah. I, when I notice myself next to the fellows that are my age and, you know, the types of personality like mine, I've always been someone who like, you might be able to, how would I say this? You may be able to lift more than me, but you yeah. cannot work harder than me. I could work yeah. <laughs> hard, physically hard as anybody else, and I would keep yeah. up for the duration. Again, you might be able to do more yeah. weight, but I will right. work to my full capacity for the yeah. entire day. I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I simply cannot do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if I even try to, the next day I wake up, my body's like, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, and, and that may just be, I mean, I, I mean, it may be influenced by the surgeries you've had and what you've gone through, but, but it may also just be a process of getting a little older too. I mean, sure. I mean, you, you don't look old. You don't, you don't look like a 50 year old geezer or anything. So, you know, <laughs> two year old geezer. <laughs> All right. But you guess what I'm saying. I believe that everything yeah, my body's been yeah. through, I, it, my, right. my body. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's had a physical impact for sure. It has a physical impact. Yeah. So you had a, uh, um, you know, a month where you had to wear these uh, protective garments to not leak. Mm -hmm. And then what mm -hmm. was, what followed after you had your surgery and how long was the recovery before you went back in to see your doc and to have them assess the, uh, the surgery, well, you go back in, the results? You, got, you, back, you go back in after 10 days and at which point they give you the pathology report. And that's, um, that's the scary part because you're going to find out if you had local metastasis and whether you, they recommend follow-up radiation. Yeah. Um, so they told me that, um, you know, I didn't have local metastasis and I didn't need any further treatment right now. And I felt, I felt pretty much, you know, on top of the world. It's like, great, I dodged a bullet, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Because the prognosis, when you catch prostate cancer early and you have your prostate removed and there's no sign or symptom of uh, any you know, cancer cells outside the prostate, you're, you're golden, you're in good shape. Hmm. And I thought that's where I was. It was only when, you know, when I started reading through, because you're, 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 all, you're, all you're hearing at that appointment is the good news, what they're saying to you. But the pathology report, there's four pages of information. And then I started reading through it on the drive home from the hospital. And, and it's saying, you know, um, uh, evidence, you know, outside of the, the envelope of the prostate. And I'm going, well, hold on. I mean, that means that there's cancer cells outside of the prostate. Mm. So I, I started questioning, well, how clear am I or, or not? 
And then when I went to see Dr. Husseini for my follow-up visits, because given the fact that I didn't need you know, follow-up treatments, I was just going locally. I wasn't going to drive up to Rochester all the time for PSA tests and that. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Husseini, he, you know, he, he acknowledged that there were cancer cells outside of the prostate. And he said, in, in his words... Mr. Murphy, we have to be very, 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 very vigilant, you know. So, so that kind of that kind of took the air out of my sails a little bit from thinking that I was in really good shape to like, oh, kind of now we're in, we're back in that you know fifty fifty arena, um, and and I, and I I I feel that Husseini, right from the get go, felt that I was going to have to have you know follow up radiation treatment. And then I go three months and, and everything is good. And I go another three months and everything is good. And I go another three months. So you're getting them for the first year. You're having PSA tests every three months. And then in the second year, they extended out to, you know, I think he extended it out to four or five months. And the, the, the time I started to feel a little more confident was um, last summer, last July when I went to see him and you know I, I was my PSA was still undetectable and he was about as positive as he had been in the whole you know year and a half two years since the surgery where I felt like oh I'm, I might be in with a, with a chance here you know and um, and he you know he he said you know I he said well he said it's great it's significant that you're you're still you know your PSA is still undetectable. He said, "I don't know if it's if it's just luck, or if it's divine intervention, <clears> or, or if the cancer. You know, the, the other possibility is that you know the the cancer cells can't live outside of the area of the prostate. That that your immune system kicks in when they go out to other parts of the body. Ah. The immune system may take care of them. You know." Um, so that's a possibility as well. But he said it's one of those three things. But either way, he said it was, it was significant that here we are a year and a half out and I'm still in good shape. And that was back last summer. And now we're, we're approaching, you know, two and a half years out. Yeah. But like I said, you know, I've read so many instances and all the, the online stuff I've been reading, which I haven't been doing for quite a while now. This was all over the period of you know, close to the time I had the surgery and that, you know, you're checking in and trying to get more and more information. I've just stopped doing that at this point. Um, but, you know, the, the, I did see cases where people were clear for, you know, five years and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, their PSA number would start to go up. So, but, you know, you've no guarantee in life anyway. So, so with prostate cancer, do they ever tell you that you are... Uh, in remission, or is it? Is there always testing? There's. You get to the point where you're just tested yearly. Okay. Um, and and I think they start to do that. I think for the first year or two, it's every three months. Then they move you to every six months, and then once you hit year five, it's you just have an annual PSA test. And is that um, standard for men at a certain age anyway? I yeah. Once once you've well, I don't know. You see, that's it's it's interesting because um, from what I've read, um, many doctors stopped doing PSA tests as part of their normal physical. You know, when you went in for your doctor uh, for for your normal physical, because there were many false positive results. So men were being told they could potentially have prostate cancer and they need to have a biopsy to see, and that's very traumatic. 
you know, yeah. even if the biopsy yeah. turns out to be negative, it's very traumatic. And it was happening, I guess, often enough that they, there was a sort of a movement towards not doing PSA tests um, when you went for your annual physical. And, and so, you know, my doctor was on board with that. So the last physical I had gone to before I saw Dr. Husseini, which was about two years later, um, she didn't do a, a PSA test. And I mean, she did a digital exam and said, you know, everything seemed okay. In my case, it probably wasn't a good deal not to do a PSA test. And, and, and I think that there may, doctors may be a little more cautious about that now because there was a sort of a 10-year period where recently where it seems as though the, <clears throat> the incidence of prostate cancer diagnosis has gone up. And it may be a result of that time when they weren't measuring quite as frequently as they had. So, you know, you pick your poison, you, you know, you're false negative, or do you find out early on that, yeah, you've got prostate cancer and then your prognosis looks really good. Right. So, do you want more false negatives or do yeah. you want more a early good, discoveries? Exactly. And a good prognosis. Yeah. Yeah. Which, having gone through it, I think, yeah, give me the false negatives. I'll take that over the, <laughs> you know. Over right. The, uh, they, there could be a not, certain way they could deliver it and say, hey, so yeah, we're going to, yeah. you know, check your PSA. Yeah. And now, I just, read, I just read recently online that um, on one of the links that was sent to us that they're, um, they're working on a blood test, a simple blood test in England. And, and it's looking good, and it's, I think, 99% accurate on the tests. They've done limited testing in men so far. But if, if that becomes the norm, that will be great. That will be easy because you can avoid the whole biopsy thing, and, and it's just a blood test that will confirm whether you, um, you, know, you have prostate cancer or not. Well, that would be um, phenomenal. Of course, they're, they're, they're kind of little, a little ways away from that being, being available to, to everybody, but... From what I read, um, it's looking positive. So five years down the road, it may just entail a blood test, which, yeah, which would be great. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think you still have your PSA test. And if your PSA number is high at a point where it would have necessitated um, having a biopsy, instead it won't be a biopsy. They just check some other marker in your blood that will let them know. And that would be the secondary test before yeah. they... Do the more invasive biopsy. They were, I, I don't think they would even have to do a biopsy. This would be a definitive mm. test, just a blood test. Yeah. Well, let's certainly yeah. hope yeah. that. Uh, that's the that's the, the the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly when when the statistics show that one in six men will get prostate cancer. That's a pretty high number. It's a pretty high number. And last yeah. I checked. It was one in four people will get cancer, and that number was growing towards uh, one yeah. in three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge. Scary, yeah. yeah, scary times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so now here you are. You're just mm -hmm. doing. Uh, how frequently are you tested? I'm tested right now every six months. Every six months. You know, in the yeah. uh, in the world of scans, for like my kind of surgery, you know, you get CT scans. You know, and we call it yeah. scansiety. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I have that too. It's um, uh, you know, no matter how how zen like you, you try to be about it, you know, when it's when you're getting close to the time, oh yeah, I gotta go for my my PSA test, and and it's no big deal. You're just having blood drawn, 
but then you're kind of waiting for the next four or five days to find out the result, and it's 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 hard to be. To, you know, you get into that space where it's hard to be completely present during those four or five days to being in the moment or to being present to what's going on in your life um, because, you know, you're thinking about, okay, what's the result going to be? What's the result going to be? Yeah, you're being tested to find out if you have cancer yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. And that, and, and that yeah. and it, it's kind shifts of, there's your a, awareness. There's, there's a certain amount of trauma involved with that. Yeah, yeah I... Uh, Go down to New York annually now to get my scans. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, since my first scan in 2012, you know, I've had uh, no evidence of cancer. Yeah, that's great, Bert. Yeah, thank you. It really is. And uh, yet just last December, I went down for my scan and I'd been having some discomfort around the area of my liver. Yeah, and when the nurse, I went in, got the, my blood work, got my scan, went out and had some lunch, came back to see the doc. First, I saw the nurse practitioner. She had me lay on the exam table. She pressed into my abdomen, just where the liver is. Said to take a deep breath. I did. It hurt, and that's the first time it had ever hurt. She'd done that all the time. I take the deep breath. Yeah. No worries. That's scary. Amen. It was scary in the. Yeah. 10 minutes or five minutes, whatever it was that I waited for my doc to come in. I was mapping out what I was going to tell my son and my stepson. I was mapping out what I was going to tell my family. I was thinking about yeah. how I could work every other week with the chemo. Yeah. It takes you right back into that oh original space of diagnosis. Yeah. And then she tells me, okay, you're good. No problem. <laughs> and... It wasn't until I got home the next day, and part of the reason I think is because I take uh, steroids and uh, what else? Um, Benadryl is it Benadryl? You know, for the CT scan because I don't respond well anymore to the uh, uh, dye they inject into you. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so they kind of prep me with these steroids and whatever else, uh, the and medication. That, that that's way more traumatic than what I. I mean, you. Yeah. I mean, you really feel like you're being tested when you're going down to New York and and, uh, yeah, and you haven't right. all that done. It, like it's a whole day. Like I just pop up to the hospital seven thirty in the morning and I'm home by eight o'clock. <laughs> you know, it's like that feels like a, a walk in the park compared to what you have to go through and other people who have. You know, yeah, you know, traveling of, traveling to the yeah. city does actually make it even more bigger a deal. Yeah. Than, uh, yeah. Than yeah. it might feel. Yeah. Uh, but I felt so whacked out from the uh from the contrast that they inject into me the scan that it wasn't until the next day that all the emotion finally caught up uh with uh that pain in my abdomen that you know yeah. i had for a few minutes believed was a recurrence yeah and uh yeah. it's just really something else going down this road of you know spending almost every day knowing like I have no idea what's going to be. I have no idea if I'll have a recurrence. And so what there is to do is to just live. But then you get to the test day and the handful of days for you, you know, for me, but since I go to New York, they give me my results before I leave. So I do it all in one day. It's kind of pretty sweet. They're, they're so accommodating right. down at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Yeah. Really wonderful. But yeah, those days wondering, 
And so that's where you are now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have an advantage over me there. You find out there and then. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting, you know, three or four days minimum. <laughs> oh, yeah. something else, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, and you know, Bert, I, I mean, as, as a practicing acupuncturist, I see some of my patients have had cancer diagnosis and are in remission, but just like you, they have to go for that scan every year. And it, I think it's the same experience for every single one of them. You know, and, and if they have any, any sort of, of um, you know, physical discomfort or, or anything a little out of the ordinary, that's the first place everybody's mind goes to is, oh, is the cancer back, you know, and, and it's, it's, and you can't not do that, it's human nature. You know? Yeah, and it just becomes yeah. another pattern that you begin to notice in life, another one of the mind's patterns and you go, okay, I remember this. And it, yeah, you know, yeah. I find that, you know, I, as I get more familiar with it, it has less of a hold on me. And then yeah. you have a little body discomfort lined up with a, a, an exam table probing of the abdomen. And all of a sudden it, yeah. it all goes yeah. full speed and, and you start, you know, the way I was operating was just, you know, I was, I was being cheery and playful with people because what was really going on was, you know, I, in, the, in my mind, I'm like, Oh my goodness, like this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just waiting for that shoe to drop. Yeah. yeah. And so you are two and a half years out and you're doing mm -hmm. blood tests every six months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's nice. It's, you know, you appreciate it. Yeah. It's great having you on the podcast, Damon. Yeah, Brett, it was fun chatting with you. Mm. And, uh, you and I have not had a long conversation like this in years. No. It was really no, no, great. No, to, no. To no catch we'll have on. to get together for a pint when this coronavirus is gone. And, and just Amen. Normally. Yeah. Amen. Thanks yeah. so much for being on the podcast, Damon. All right. You're welcome. Thanks, Bert. Yep. Great to talk to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Finger Lakes Acupuncture is where you can find Eamon Murphy, and you can find Finger Lakes Acupuncture at fingerlakesacupuncture.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all in the next podcast, and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.